Welcome back to the 151st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including is the Department of Federal Education on its way out? We got a lot of talking points about it at the debate, and it seems like it's not going to last too long. A article about the journalist, Andy No and his ongoing lawsuits, and then a short one coming from the Wall Street Journal talking about how screens are giving people nearsightedness. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So should we have a federal department of education or should this be something that is determined on the state level? And there are lots of arguments one way or the other, and we will get into them during this first article, no doubt. But I want to know everybody's opinions. I want you to throw it down there in the comment section. Is there a place for a federal department of education? And if you don't think so, then I'll ask you a follow-up, which is, is there a place for at least some standardized rules on what should be taught? This is obviously one of the biggest contentions when it comes to these sort of issues around top-down control by federal agencies. So I want to hear everybody's opinion. Throw them down in the comment section. Let's jump into our first article. And this one comes from Cato, or sorry, to be precise, the Cato Institute. Four GOP presidential candidates say they'll close education department. That's good policy. So obviously, from the first line here, you, you know exactly where Cato is coming from. You know what they're trying to get at here. They want the federal education department to be gonzo, to no longer exist, to not have such a prominent role. I'll tell you that ahead of time because obviously it's <laughs> you can hear the title. I already read it to you. It's pretty darn straightforward. But also I want you to see it through that lens. And I'll point out a few things here or there that are very, very interesting. To be honest, I don't necessarily have a deep burning passion about this particular subject when it comes to the Department of Ed. I can see the arguments for both sides, but I do have a passion about the bureaucratic systems that are in place, the administrative systems that are in place that employ so many people that sometimes things get lost in the weeds. Sometimes we're spending too much money, we're being inefficient, and as a person who was a business major during college, these sort of arguments were, hey, we need to trim the fat. We need to be like a venture capital firm, come in, keep what is necessary in order to make profit and then sell it off in order to, you know, flip it, make a little bit of money afterwards. That sort of idea does resonate with me. I understand when some of these politicians say, hey, these embedded bureaucrats, they're so inefficient, they're wasting so much time, energy, money, that we don't need that. I mean, I don't want my tax dollars going to that personally. So I understand both sides of the argument, though, because there is obviously a necessary understanding that we have when we come into a society, when we give our tax dollars, when we give up a little bit of our freedoms in order to have a functioning government, a functioning nation. I've discussed this many times on the podcast before because it is something that underlines the system that we live in. I I know that some people don't want to fully acknowledge there are lots of pure libertarians or anarchists who say that, hey, we need to be gone with the government or we need to really limit how they interact with our lives. And I'm not necessarily saying that they always interact in our lives with our lives in a good way. But there is a reason that we have 
establish the system that we have established because there are overriding rule of law issues that are protected by our government. If we didn't have a government, a nation, who had the power to coerce, who had a legal slash judicial system in order to enforce its laws, you lose the ability to make a contract with somebody and feel purely in the safe place of mind in order to go through with that contract. If you have a contract that can't be enforced, you just have a gentleman's agreement. If you go over to Billy Bob Joe, the cow farmer next door, and you say, hey, can I have one of your cows? I want to get some of the milk. I maybe want to breed it with one of my cows. And while I'm renting it out from you, because you obviously won't be able to get milk from it during that time, uh, I will give you one of my premium horses. And Billy Bob Joe, he's like, well, uh, I don't know if there's no legal system. How can I guarantee that you're going to give me a good horse? If we set certain terms, how do I know that you're going to keep to it? Maybe you just keep the cow forever. So these sort of things are gentlemen's agreements. And, you know, they worked for a long time. Bartering has worked for a large portion of our existence. But in a legal system, you can sign a contract with Billy Bob Joe. You can facilitate a trade, not purely based on good faith, but on the understanding that that person will be punished if they don't meet their end of the deal, which then really removes the fact that you have to fully trust somebody else that you don't necessarily know in order to participate in a transaction that can't be to your benefit or their benefit or the mutual benefit of everybody in the group. So I went on a really long rant there because I really wanted to establish two things. One, the bureaucratic state is not so good. I'm not a big fan. And that's where I come down on part of the issue. The other reason I brought up the need for different systems to be in place and these different overarching truths that hold throughout the nation is to show that I also understand the other side of the argument. There needs to be, at least in my opinion, there needs to be at least a bottom line standard. We can't have it that a rural county in Arkansas can get away with having kids come out with a third grade reading level and a fifth grade math level, but then you have the coasts where a lot of funding is already come out with kids who are already college prepped and will probably get accepted to those colleges more. It will just cause more disparity between the amount of people that are able to move up in this economy. And also, it just is terrible for our nation. We want a well-educated populace. So having certain minimum standards that we have to reach is a good way to at least set the bar at a place that we know, hey, if you're underneath this, you are failing. And that also gives the even the states, if they're the ones doing the funding rather than the federal government, which is what a lot of people who want to get rid of the federal education department will declare, it even gives the states a very good metric to see where they line up with other states and which schools they may need to give their money to. It's not just about saying, oh, you have to teach this. It is also about implementing a system where you can use metrics that are holding true across the entire nation as a business major. And I keep bringing it up as a business major because you need metrics in order to understand whether you are delivering on time, whether you are getting the most cost-effective use of your materials. You have to have things standardized. You have to say, okay, we're going to have, instead of, oh, we're going to have a measurement for 
return on plywood, return on screws. You say return on money spent. You have an overarching metric that allows you to analyze the whole situation rather than having to get really knee deep in the the minutia of the situation. You want an overarching metric that allows you to compare not just to yourself, but also to other companies. That's why you have things like price-to-earnings ratio for different Wall Street firms because you want to be able to compare them across the entire industry. And that's why there is that standard, that metric in place. So having at least a guideline and being able to set yourself up against said guideline, it allows you to create these metrics more easily and compare yourself across the nation. So I've ranted long enough. And if you've stuck with me this entire time, I very, very much appreciate it. You are probably a person who has a lot of time on their hands and is just listening to a post-college student rant about their opinion of the government. But let's jump to the Cato Institute article. Quote, Republicans have been promising a shutdown of the Federal Department of Education ever since it created. It was created by Jimmy Carter in 1980, some 43 years ago. At the first GOP presidential debate in August 23rd, four contenders said that they would end the department if elected. While trusting a politician's promise is a dubious gamble, closing down Fed Ed is good policy, end quote. So you can see where they're coming from. They're going to give a whole overview of everything that they believe coming soon. But this is the key thing that we need to focus on in that first paragraph. 43 years, 43 years politicians have been making this claim. So when you hear Ramaswamy come up and make claims like that, when you say hear DeSantis, even though he's not as hardline as Ramaswamy, when you hear these sort of claims, if you are not already aware of how politics works or if you have not at least watched the system for most of your lifetime, then don't trust it. And if you have listened and watched the system for a long time, you know exactly what it is. I think it's even a trope at this point in the culture. Politicians, I don't want to say lie. They have good intent. You know, if I'm talking to the less cynical part of myself, they have good intentions, but they can't necessarily realize it. If I'm talking from the more cynical side, they lie. They make big promises, and then they can't always fill them in. They can't backfill the promises. And that's just how it works sometimes. So when you hear these sort of claims, be very, very skeptical. Trust a person on what they do, not what they say. That's just my opinion on the matter. Let's jump to the second quote that I wanted to highlight. Quote, as the Cato Institute's 2022 handbook for policymakers states, and the reason I think this is important before I go through what they actually say in this handbook is they're quoting their own handbook. They're saying this is good policy, and it's in the Cato Institute handbook. So you can see where the moneyed interests are. I'm not saying that the Cato Institute is bad for being a nonprofit that puts forward policy positions and gets lots of money from donors in order to do so. They are a great institution that is trying to affect the political system in a positive way, or at least from their point of view, a positive way. I wouldn't disagree with them on most things. Sometimes I would, but it's a very interesting point of view. It's very interesting to highlight that they are pulling from their own playbook here. They are directly quoting from what they've said in the past, which shows a nice level of consistency, no doubt. But also, when they say it's good policy, they're arguing from their own playbook that they put forward. They're not necessarily pulling out statistics from other people that would necessarily agree with them and disproving them. They're just relying on their own material that they put out for 
these politicians in their different briefings. And it's not inherently a bad thing. Lots of people pull from their own knowledge. They pull from their own books. They pull from statistics that they've generated themselves. I'm not inherently calling it wrong. It's just something that you need to keep in mind when you're reading through this article if you go to it on your own. And I would suggest it, honestly. There's more stuff in here than I'm going to cover because, one, it's their material, so I'm not just going to straight rip it off. I'm going to make comments about it. But, two, because some of the things, you know, I don't think are necessarily as important to bring to the forefront, but if you care about these issues, jump to this article and read it. Quote, the Constitution gives the federal government no authority to exercise control over elementary and secondary education, including by spending money and attaching conditions to the funds, the primary mode by which Washington has influenced education. End quote. So now we get to the local slash state government argument. We should be teaching things on a local basis. And why is this an important argument? Why does it resonate a little bit? Let me ask you this. If you grow up in a farming neighborhood, if you grow up in a county that is extremely farm heavy, and there are farmers who have to do math on a daily basis in order to say, okay, we're going to need this much water for this much acreage for this amount of plants. Oh, we did this amount of seeds. We need to have the calculation on how much we need to actually charge people. If you have a business-focused county, then the people there are probably going to be a little bit more proficient at math. That is a overgeneralization, no doubt. But imagine you have a county that is really good at math. Is it necessary that you spend as much time focusing on math when they live it out in their everyday lives? When they go home from school, they're helping their dad do the math on what they should charge or their mom for how much they should charge for their side business that they're doing? It probably wouldn't be as necessary. Maybe you want to focus more on different literature. Maybe you want to spend some time on some engineering stuff rather than just purely math. Maybe you're in a population distribution that has a whole bunch of engineer parents and they're like, well, I'm already teaching my kids most of this stuff at home. I'm giving them the engineer mindset. We don't necessarily need to teach them as much of this stuff in schools. And I know this is a very specialized case and it doesn't always hold true and you can't make too overly large generalizations. But the point is, Different people, different localities are proficient at different things. So if you grow up in a community that is extremely well-read, every single parent or most of the parents pass around literature to each other. They have book clubs. Their kids read Shakespeare when they're in fifth grade. Do you really need that kid rereading Shakespeare when he goes into school or she goes into school and they possibly get bored and they're not invested in learning? They think it's a whole bunch of buckets because they learned this English author when they were five years old versus, and let's be clear, if someone's reading Shakespeare at five-year-old, I respect them. I still have a hard time at 23. It takes me probably a good 30 minutes to really get into the flow of reading it. And even then, that doesn't mean I understand everything. But my point is, the people of a local community know better what is needed for their children. And also, the teachers in that community know it's better for the children than a federal government that is overreaching and telling the entire nation that they have to do it a particular way. So leaving it to the states, leaving it to the localities, their different school boards, this is how it should be done. We already have this system here in America. Local school boards can approve and disapprove things. But also there are mandates that come down from the federal education department. There are certain guidelines that they have to stick with. There's certain material that they recommend. And sometimes those recommendations do come with strings. Sometimes if you don't implement certain policies, if you don't go about doing something a certain way, you don't get the money that is needed to fund these different departments in all these localities. So 
remove the federal government from it. Make sure that the federal money doesn't come with strings attached. If anything, there's a guideline that they put out. They're kind of like the Cato Institute. They're just advising. They're just giving a path forward. They're not saying you have to do anything. They're not saying the funding is tied to it. So I think that that is an interesting approach and is something that will definitely be debated more as Ramaswamy is very passionate about this and other people, other contenders in the race are going to say, okay, so Ramaswamy's hidden something here. We're going to have to talk about these issues a little bit more than we would probably like to, or at least more than our donors would probably like. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from Truth Out. And this is the one about Andy No, and I just I want you to listen to the headline here. Right winger Andy No lost his suit. Why are defendants on the line for damages? So, right winger Andy No. I, maybe you could make an argument that he is leaning more conservative nowadays. I would say that's probably because the left has left him behind. He he's pretty liberal. He's been pretty liberal. And when I say that, maybe I mean it in the more traditional sense of liberal than in the new age sense of liberal. But he's not far right. He's I mean, right winger is they're kind of become synonymous with far right nowadays. And I just don't agree with that assessment. I think it's kind of disingenuous. But everybody has their own opinion. I'm not going to, you know, absolutely ambassador him for that. It's just something when I first read it, that's why it caught my attention. I was like, wait, hold on. Andy, no, they're calling him a right winger now. So if you don't know what happened to Andy, he was in Portland trying to report on the activities of Antifa. And he had a milkshake thrown on him, which was believed or was thought to have cement in it. So he obviously filed a lawsuit for uh, assault and battery. And he's People, you know, this article is actually trying to highlight that the investigation, the using the lawsuit as a way to actually get the information of the activists that were there in order to do a little bit more research on them rather than actually to get money and damages from them. And I think it's an interesting argument that it's a little bit of lawfare. And if it is lawfare, if it is Andy No actually trying to probe into who these activists are by using the legal system to his benefit. I think it's savvy. I don't think it's necessarily okay. Now, do you always want to know when something happens to you like that, when you get attacked, assaulted, do you want to know who you're, the person who attacked and assaulted you is? Yes, of course. There's always that curiosity there. There's always that yearning to understand who they were, why they did it, and you know, look them eye to eye, man to man, woman to woman, man to woman, whatever you want to say there. You want to look at that other human being and see what kind of person they are. But if he's just using it to get their information as a form of lawfare, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's acceptable. And some people did get caught in the crossfire because of it. Quote, when Elizabeth Riker first received notice on December 13th, 2022, that she was being sued by right-wing media performer Andy No, also performer there. He's not a performer. He's a journalist. He actually does journalism. At least he used to. I haven't seen his Twitter feed in a long time. Maybe he's gone far down on that, that rabbit hole, but I, I haven't seen it. I'll tell you that much. Quote, none of it made sense. Riker had only ever been in proximity to No once, at a 2021 Black Lives Matter demonstration, No had dressed in all black clothing in an effort to go undetected by demonstrators. A group of activists discovered him, prompting No to flee into the Nines, a high-priced hotel in downtown Portland. 
believing Noe was partially responsible for the harassment of many of those closest to her, Riker let out a stream of expletives as Noe fled the building. While she would rather not have sworn at Noe, she was a constantly constitutionally protected form of free speech, so she thought little about it. But when she was served in Noe's expanding lawsuit, that one that had begun nearly two years prior in 2020, she was speechless. Quote, I was really scared. I just, it just seemed outrageous. The claims that he put in his suit against me were huge lies, Riker told Truth Out. There was a huge part of me that thought this would not go anywhere because it's so untrue. But I had no legal background, so I kind of felt really alone, end quote. So there's obviously a lot that they talk about throughout the article. And I really, I'll hone in on what's going on here. She feels as though she is getting unjustly thrown the bill for the lawsuit, even though he lost because she didn't necessarily show up. Or I believe another defendant didn't show up because they were actually in jail at the time because they were arrested at a demonstration. And they're kind of getting hamstrung with some of these fees. And I think that this is the problem with lawfare. When you're going after people using the judicial system and they don't necessarily understand why they think that they did something right rather than wrong, even though you know they get summons and they are told to appear in front of the court. And sometimes they get caught up when they're just on video doing something that you don't necessarily like, but they didn't actually you know, perform any form of battery upon you. And I don't know if I didn't do any research to see if she actually said any threats at him rather than just cursing at him. But if her account is true and she just cursed at him, then... She didn't assault him. She didn't threaten him, which would therefore be assault. So why is she being included in this? While I do agree with what Andy No does, while I do believe that he is doing the right thing, trying to expose these Antifa groups, which he has been doing for a long time now because they tend to be violent, or at least, if you don't want to take me on my word on that one or you don't agree with that, they at least are provocateurs and they are most definitely trying to unsettle People will make them not feel safe when they are going about their normal protests that they would be participating in, or as Ms. Riker talks about here, they're participating in protected free speech and they're there to intimidate or at least show some sort of counter movement. And while everybody has the right to do that when things do get out of hand, which has happened a lot with Antifa, just as it has happened with other groups too, I think that a person is in the right when he's trying to identify them. At least some other groups... They have their face out in the open. When they when people cover up their face, it's so extremely cowardly. And that's something you've seen with lots of groups that are on the right and they cover up their face because they want to have this anonymity that they're used to online or the same thing with Antifa. When they want to go out and they want to protest, they cover their faces, they wear all black. This is just, it's absolutely frustrating and infuriating because we have systems in place, we have protections in place that allow you to go out there, but if you're trying to show dissatisfaction, own up to it. Own up to the fact that you're not happy with the system. Don't hide behind a mask because, one, it's just scummy. It is absolutely... I have no respect for you for not being willing to put your face behind what you believe in. But also because it leads to a propensity of feeling as though they're not going to be liable. If you go online... So let me, let me phrase it to you this way. When you're online having an argument with somebody or you are face-to-face -face having an argument with somebody, 
which is more likely to devolve into name-calling, into hostilities, into anger? I've noticed, for the most part, it's online. Don't get me wrong. There is a cordial conversation that can be on ha- online. I've had a whole bunch of them. But what I've noticed is when you are not personally liable, and this has been a trend that people have talked about about our social media age, when you're not personally liable, when you're not likely to get punched in the face, when you're not going to have to face the consequences to your actions directly, you are more likely to be trollish. So if you cover your face when you go out in public and you feel as though that brings you a little bit of, mm, I have a little bit of anonymity, I can get away with a little bit more, they don't necessarily know who I am, then you're more likely to do stupid things. So not only do I find it really scummy when you cover your face and you're not backing your claims, I also think that it leads to more problems and it leads to more violence because people don't feel responsible or they feel as though the liability will not be put on them because there's a certain amount of safety that comes behind that mask and those sunglasses and those hats that Antifa and other groups also wear a lot. So I think what No is doing is the right thing. But I also think that this lawsuit of his, it may be a, <laughs> it may be one case where I don't agree with him. Uh, actually, I take that back. There are a few different cases where I actually don't agree with Andy No. But this lawsuit, when it comes to the system where we're using lawfare, where we're using the legal system as a tool, as a weapon, as a hammer to go after opponents, just as they are doing with. Joe Biden, just or sorry, Hunter Biden, just as they are doing with Donald Trump and some of his associates, it is absolutely repugnant. And it speaks to what I talked about in the very first 10 minutes. The law system, the judicial system, should be there to ensure that citizens know that the coercion that government has will be channeled in a way that will benefit them and allow them to operate within their everyday lives with a sense of security and trust in the system that they are giving up a little bit of their freedoms for. And when that system is turned on the citizens, when that system that is meant to provide security is actually infringing upon people's rights and is being used as a hammer rather than as a shield, that is when we have a problem. And if you have made it all the way through here from the first eight minutes to this point and you heard that connection, I'm happy it kind of just came out of my mind at the last second. Thank you for spending this much time. And I really do appreciate you coming all the way through to this point in the article and this point in the podcast. You are a superstar. Thank you for sticking with me this long in order to make that really uh, out-of-nowhere connection. So, speaking of different things that are a problem in our nation, you know, the legal system being used as a hammer instead of a shield, well, we're moving on to something that's a problem, but it's not necessarily on the same wavelength. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal, screens and lack of sun are causing epidemic of myopia. And you may be wondering, hey, hold on, myo- what, what's myopia? Nearsightedness. And this is something that, you know, I experience myself. I am nearsighted. I use some glasses when I'm driving at night or sometimes when my eyes feel a little tired or it's raining. I put on my distance glasses when I'm driving. So, I thought this was a very interesting article to go on. And I'll probably just read one quote from it, but I more want to highlight something from it that I think is really interesting and isn't necessarily the whole point of the article that could be elaborated on a little bit more. So scientists have said that kids who are holding screens really close to their face and not getting enough natural sunlight, even reading too close to your face in the dark or 
not with natural sunlight providing the lighting for that reading, can be damaging. There's something about natural light that prevents your eyes from becoming a little bit elongated. You can get astigmatism or cataracts later on in your life if you don't necessarily get enough natural light during the day. And the author chucks this up to our increased uses of screens, our ability or our want to inability to go out or our want to stay inside, such as COVID or just changing environments and cultural trends where we happen to stay inside a little bit more. We don't necessarily go as out as much as we once did. And I want to read this brief three paragraphs from the very beginning and point out something that they don't necessarily mention here that I think is actually really important to this conversation. Quote, nearsightedness develops in children typically between the ages of 5 and 16 and is closely linked to a lack of exposure to sunlight. Eye doctors say more kids are developing the condition at earlier ages. Half the global population is expected to be nearsighted by 2050, up from 30% now, according to the World Health Organization. Sure, kids choosing screens over outdoor fun is a long-run potential overplayed theme. As And, as annoying as it is to parents, it's been hard to qualify or quantify the damage. In the case of eyesight, however, the research is clear. Our vision is getting worse because of our relationship with our devices. While there's no consensus on how much time kids spend outside, doctors like to cite one stat from a 2015 University of Michigan study. Kids spend just seven minutes a day in unstructured outdoor play. If anything, that figure has shrunk in recent years. Schools and children care centers still have recess, and many kids play outdoor sports, so they're likely getting more outdoor time than that. But they aren't wandering the streets or riding bikes like they did in the past decades. End quote. And that is what I wanted to highlight here. There's there's two aspects to this. One, the screens that we look at, the social media we interact with, the systems that are built around us are meant to hijack our dopamine centers and to keep us on these different programs. You know, it's really satisfying. When I use my news app, it's really satisfying how that screen flips. Oh, that that half second of dopamine when you flip the page and then it flips over and you're like, oh, yes, that was so satisfying. These systems are meant to keep us locked in. But also, there's another thing that has changed in our demographics that has made it easier for us to be locked in inside. This constant fear, this lack of, or this feeling of a lack of safety. We have been drugged by these media companies because they want to run with bad headlines. They want to run with all the negative stories about all of these shootings, about all of these deaths, about these tragedies. And of course, they are important to highlight. But when we only focus on those, when we spend more time on those, you feel less secure in your home. You don't want your kids going outside. You don't want your kids going down the street and just walking to their friend's house and enjoying an outdoor game. You're more paranoid. And this has been a trend that more parents want their kids to stay home. They don't necessarily want them to go out. They won't let them wander the city. And you've seen a lot of these urban trends where kids are spending more time indoors. When you spend more time indoors, if you're reading without natural sunlight, guess what? You're probably going to develop nearsightedness. So even if you're doing something healthy indoors, you can develop nearsightedness. But then there's also the, oh, well, a phone's easy, a tablet's easy. Instead of buying a whole elaborate chessboard and all these other different games and all these different activities, guess what? You can get an iPad for 
$250. It comes with all these different activities. You don't have to constantly spend money to get new games. Rather, they can go online and find them. They can just download apps that are free that just serve up ads. So it seems like a good way. Hey, well, they're still stimulating their mind. They're playing these different games. They're coloring on the iPad. They're doing chess with their friends online. Sure, these are all good things, but they're replacing the hard physical objects that we would need in order to do these things traditionally rather than the iPad. So the iPad is great convenience and more people want to keep their kids at home because they're afraid of what's going on around them. But it is a detriment to the child. And I hope that this article gets picked up a little bit more because we already know for the most part that these hijack the dopamine centers, they're going to leave kids addicted. They're going to lead to higher depression if they misuse social media and so on and so forth and all these different, we know all of this, but this is just one more thing, a quantifiable aspect of the problem, which now parents are going to have to spend more money on getting their kids good health insurance or good eye insurance. They're going to have to spend money on getting them sports lenses for their different games or different sports that they do. They're going to have to get them expensive reading glasses or glasses for school so they can see the chalkboard. So it just adds another layer or another tick in that column, which is, hey, get off the screens, get outside, enjoy the world. Even just reading outdoors. If you really want your kid to read, get them to read outdoors. One, they'll have a beautiful place to do it. Two, they are less likely to develop a problem because it's natural light that is supplying the way to see the page. So it's just something that I thought was interesting. I wanted to highlight the security aspect to it because it's something they don't mention too much, but I think it is also important to identify the cultural shift that has happened and how it has adverse effects that we didn't necessarily think about when we first started discussing it because it has been in the mainstream for quite some time now. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. I did a little bit of ranting, raving, some positive, some negative today. So let's go to this heartwarming story that comes from Huddingston Times. Dog has heart-melting reaction petting another pooch. Now, imagine imagine you could kind of outsource your petting responsibilities to another animal of yours. I mean, come on. This is ideal. And then you see this dog's reaction. It's absolutely adorable. Quote, a dog's reaction to petting another pooch was captured on camera. The super adorable video shows the dog sitting near another pooch and slowly petting its head. And, you know, honestly, the dog on the couch looks pretty darn satisfied, but the reaction from the the one that's actually petting is amazing. The video was posted on X, sorry, no, it's Twitter, at the handle Buttigieg Biden. And I think it's supposed to be Buttigieg Biden, I, I guess that's what they're going for, but it's misspelled in a few different ways. Quote, me after touching a dog, reads the caption. I mean, it's a, it's a really cute video, and uh, I hope that you guys have time to go see it. If you want to watch it or read any of the other articles from the day, there'll be a link in the description to all of them down below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you'll find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, as well as Google Podcasts, and the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.